0: Are you an investigative professional? Did you know you can find the best private investigator resources using InvestigatorsToolbox.com? This resource community was built exclusively for licensed investigators and investigative professionals. You can network directly with members, educate yourself through free webinars and blogs, and even create your own customizable research library. Membership starts for as little as 49 cents a day. Download the Investigators Toolbox app or visit our webpage at www.investigators-toolbox.com.
1: Is a good case management system keeping you from taking your business to the next level? Crosstrax is the premier case management system for the investigative community. They're the only SOC 2 certified case management software available. Visit Crosstracks.com, tell them you're a listener, and save even more. Get a plan in place for the new year to grow your business to the next level. NCISS is inviting all investigative professionals to join an open town hall meeting on Tuesday, February 15th at 2 p.m. Eastern. There are some major data privacy concerns on the horizon that you should know about. This could affect our ability to do investigative work. The meeting is free to attend, so visit nciss.com to register or check the show notes for a clickable link. Welcome to this week's episode of PI Perspectives, sticking to the issue of death cases. On this episode, we speak with Colorado's own Rachel Roberts. Rachel recently helped achieve a big legal victory based on creating a timeline. The use of technology and investigative skill helped her overturn a murder conviction due to an apparent suicide. She also discusses her experience of testifying during COVID. So please welcome Rachel Roberts and your host, Private Investigator Matt Spare.
2: And welcome everybody to this week's episode of PI Perspectives. This is your host, Matt Spare. Uh, today we're in New York and we got some snow coming and uh, we're reaching out to Colorado where there's tons of snow. So uh, I want to welcome Rachel Roberts to the program. Rachel, how are you?
0: Hi, Matt. Doing well. Less snow over here than you might think. Thanks for having me.
2: <laughs> no problem. No problem. <laughs> I appreciate you coming on. We've been talking for a while about having you on and, and the timing just wasn't right. You you have a very busy practice you know, you're definitely involved in, in a lot of different uh, different types of projects and things. So uh, tell me, what, what what exactly is your business and uh, how'd you get into it?
0: Sure. I would say that 95% of my work is criminal defense investigations. I do a little bit of civil rights investigations. Those are plaintiff cases. Uh, but for the most part, uh, criminal defense, mm. violent crime, sexual assault, a um, little bit of white collar fraud. Although... That's not my forte. So I'm going to stay away from that for a little bit. Right. And I got into investigations in a very roundabout way. Um, in college, my degree is actually environmental design, but junior year I added journalism as a second major. Mm. I decided that I just loved looking into everything, and investigative journalism was a course that I took and really fell in love with. I had an amazing opportunity. To work as a student correspondent for the Boston Globe. There was a massive tornado that ripped through Western Massachusetts, obviously very uncommon. And we partnered up with the Globe, my investigative journalism course. It was their spotlight team, which uh, if you're not familiar, they're the investigative team for the Globe, their Pulitzer Prize winning group. Wow. And uh, there's actually a movie called The Spotlight. I think it's called Just Spotlight. Um, okay. And my mentor at the Globe is played by Brian D'Arcy James in that movie. Cool. Uh, he was the data nerd in the movie. He's Maddie, uh in real life. He's Matt Carroll. So he was my mentor. We went house to house and collected, you know, data on storm damage. Did a lot of work on insurance and FEMA and and how these victims of the storm were were getting help. And that's when I really fell in love with data analysis. Right. From there, um, I tried to get a journalism job, couldn't find one that paid. And I interviewed at NPR in Boston. And the editor there said, I don't have a paying job, but you should really talk to my wife. So right. I started talking to her. She ran a small research boutique called the Indigo Group. I worked there for four years. We investigated corporate fraud and false claims of companies with multi-billion dollar market caps. Uh, most of them were medical device companies or pharmaceutical drug companies. As you can imagine, there's plenty of fraud there to be found. So I started doing a little data analysis with that as well. Um, went to a week-long boot camp at the National Institute of Computer Assisted Reporting, which is in at Mizzou, the University of Missouri. Okay. And um, so for four years, yeah, I spent some time doing a lot of data analysis for that job. And... Was kind of thinking I was doing a lot of legal work, legal research, and thought to myself, you know, I'm kind of, kind of getting over this. Right. Really, you know, corporate fry. It's the white collar stuff. I just don't. It's not my thing. And um, thought about going to law school, but I knew it was a huge time and money commitment. So I thought that I should
2: figure out if that's something I really wanted to do yeah I can why don't I relate to that totally yeah I did the same same thing so I I was uh lining up to go to law school the attorney I was working for in-house was like you'd be a great lawyer go to law school and I'll pay you like you're an employee and then when you're done you know you just come work for me I was like sweet that's great and then I saw how much it was going to cost to go to law school and I'm like I think I'll write a business plan to start a business instead you know so Right.
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, having done this for five and a half years now, I think we get to have all the fun. Yeah. Uh, You know, legal investigators were we're the ones out there planning the pavement and um, they're sitting at their desk writing motions. So I think I made the right decision here. I'm
2: right there. Um, I couldn't go through the the deposition transcripts was like, you know, my eyes were crossing trying to read this stuff because I was doing all the pre-trial for the guy that I was working for. It's like, you know, get everything organized for me and give me the bullet points and all that. So, yeah, you know, it was, it was good. It helped me understand, you know, the business and what I needed to, to look for and things like that. And I think even the FEMA stuff that you were doing, the going out and the door knocking, like you're developing social skills, you know, social engineering doing that. So it's like one thing is building into the next and building into the next. I'm sure there were tons of things you learned while doing that, that you brought with you for your next thing, right?
0: Absolutely. And I think, journalism in itself is curiosity and persistence and everything else you can learn. Right. And I think it's the same for investigation. As long as you're curious and persistent uh, you know, those guys at the globe, they always said their, their sort of motto was the hardest part of my job is and always has been picking up the phone, you just got to pick up the phone. Yeah. And that's so true with investigation too. I find a lot of people just don't, don't like calling or, you know, I, Sometimes say I'm like a professional harasser, but yeah. in a polite way, of course, because you don't get anything if you're not nice. To people, you you got
2: to do kids gloves. And it's almost like, you know, th- there is that social engineering aspect to it. Right. You would want somebody to do this for you. You know, I'm trying to make this as uh, inconvenient as possible for you or, or not in, inconvenient. Right. We're trying to make it convenient for you. And um you know, just got a few minutes. Like I always say, like, I, I just got a couple of questions for you, right? <laughs> 25 minutes later, yeah, you know?
0: <laughs> exactly. And I always like to try and empower the person too, yeah. right? You know, you pick up the phone, you call, them, I, I'm not too sure if I'm in the right place.
2: Right. I you need know, feel
0: free to forward me to the right person. But yeah. I, I just, I have this question and I don't know who can answer it.
2: Well, that's that's a real key to this, right? Is inserting somebody into the narrative. You know, I say it all the time when I talk about this stuff, right? People have this desire to be a part of the, the story right they want to say like this is what i saw i can contribute i can help you know like it, our personalities typically as humans is we want to do that right um not everybody's like that but for the most part there is and and if you approach that situation where it's like this person is the most valuable person you're speaking to and make them feel that way you know you're really going to get good results i remember i had a, a premises case where this guy um he worked for the city. Uh, but the case was against a private company, and and this guy like every day when he went to work he saw this defect, and it was like really bothering him that they never fixed it. And this guy would actually call three one one and make complaints, so we were able to like find him. And he was so angry that he made all these complaints and nothing was ever done, you know, uh, you know, to have this thing fixed. He was like he couldn't wait to get on the stand. <laughs> That's so amazing. Yeah. It's like,
0: yeah. You, you got to find those people. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. It was, I was like, I didn't even have to ask him. He was just like, yeah, when am I going to court? So like, here we go. <laughs> um, so that's cool. Always
0: that, nice to have a willing witness.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot, I would assume it's a lot easier on the, the personal injury side than it is on the criminal side. I don't do much criminal work. Um, what's been your experience with that and dealing, um, we trying to get people to testify. It's,
0: um, particularly when you know you have a lot of adverse witnesses, I would say um, it, it's it's everyone takes a side, right? And mm-hmm. what I always try to express to witnesses, regardless of whether we think they'll be favorable or not, so much is you know, all we really want is the truth, right? Right. I I don't you know it. I'm not asking you to say something to make my client look good or bad. I just right. want you to be truthful yeah. and you know, speak con- complete in, in what you're saying and not have selective memories, you know, a lot of confirmation bias that goes on and especially with cases that are in the media. And so um, it, it can be hard. Um, but I think generally speaking, most people understand, you know, that this is a, it's a, a judicial process. I had a case, my federal case recently that went to trial up in Wyoming. It was a penny stock pump and dump which I will probably never do again. Yeah. And, uh, I had this, you know, kind of cowboy. He was like the Marlboro man. I mean, he sounded like the Marlboro man right. and <laughs> looked like the Marlboro man too. Was he went by, he went by the name red. So okay. that actually like he was just, he was a character and I got along well with him, but yeah. um, he was not favorable of, you know, he didn't like my client at all. And I said, that's okay. You know, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not asking you to like, I'm just asking you to tell the truth. And he's like, well, you know, and I gave him a subpoena and of course it's a court order, but well, why should I come and and talk for, you know, on his behalf? And, you know, of course I do the gentle, well, you don't really have a choice. I say it in right. nicer words, but I also just say, you know, this is, this is a constitutional right. You know, everyone has the right to be presumed innocent until they're found guilty. And so, you know, it's due process. If you believe in the constitution, then You should be okay with going through this process.
2: Well, as a cowboy, you probably tugged on some heartstrings right there. Yeah, I, I
0: thought the Constitution <laughs> talk might work well for that. Tell so.
2: them there's, a, there's a, a pack of unfiltered uh, <laughs> camels there for them, too. <laughs> well,
0: ironically, this conversation took place in a smoking cafe in Wyoming at about 6.30 in the morning. Of so, course it yeah. did. <laughs> there was a lot of smoke going around, yeah. <laughs>
2: of course it did. I wouldn't expect anything other than that. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm sure, you know, it's difficult to approach those situations and really get a read on who you're talking to. And finding those things that you can hang hang on to and really drive home. It was, it's great that you were able to, to identify that and play on that 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 theme that you know is going to touch someone's heart to uh, to to have them testify on behalf. And you know, you brought up a really good point, right? It's not that we want you to say a certain thing or do a certain thing. It's just reporting on on the on the truth, right? And I think as investigators, that's how we succeed, and not having that real vested interest on. Um, you know, having it go one way or the other, if you can stay neutral and just report on whatever it is, you're going to go far in this business because, you know, first of all, you don't take it home with you as much. Right. And, and second of all, it is what it is. You
0: know, I am very bad at the not taking it home. Yeah, I can, uh, yeah. My husband can attest to that as yeah. well.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah but I have a very understanding spouse also. <laughs> She's like, sure, honey, tell me about your day. <laughs> Here we go again. Yeah. Uh, it's it's all good. These are all good things. Um, so you're originally from from uh, the Northeast, then.
0: I am. I yeah. grew up in Bangor, Maine. Okay. Not a lot of people can say that. Home of Stephen King. So that's exciting.
3: Hey.
0: Uh, I grew up in uh, Bangor. I went to school at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and then I lived in Boston for a couple years and moved out to Colorado for some bigger ski mountains.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I love going to Boston. My family, like in the, during COVID, the first thing that they were asking is, "When can we go back to Boston?" Just so random. Um, that is so random. But it's like, it's, especially it,
0: for a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, and it's like
2: it's three hours from where I live, so it's not too bad of a drive. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe it's just the family time together that that they love. And there's pretty cool things to see in Boston. There's a, there's a lot of lot of good stuff. I mean, I'll be a New Yorker at heart, but Boston's a pretty cool city too. All right. So that's great. Um, you've definitely um, you made a mark here. And I wanted to have you on today to talk about uh, a sp- specific case that you had worked on last year um, and also your experiences recently with uh, going into the courtroom with uh, with COVID and uh, what that looks like. So we're going to jump out and take a break. And, and when we come back, I really want to want to jump
4: into all this stuff. Um, so everybody sit tight and we'll be right back. Don't let asset investigations become a hassle for you. Let the professionals at J.T. Palmer & Associates, Inc. get you the information you need. We are a team of research specialists dedicated to providing you the intelligence that you're unable to locate through public databases. We have national and international resources available to provide accurate results to assist you in your asset investigations and in a timely manner we work tirelessly to uncover exactly what collectible assets someone has. Whether you're investigating a business or an individual, our dedicated research team employs a range of techniques to bring the investigation to a conclusion. All information developed over the course of these searches is obtained in an ethical, legal, honest, professional manner. When you need asset investigations done right, turn to J.T. Palmer & Associates. You can contact our team by visiting our website at jtpalmerassociates.com or call 800-808-0078.
1: Check out the PI Institute of Education at piinstitute.com. Since 1989, Kelly Riddle has been teaching on subjects such as surveillance, nursing home investigations, insurance fraud, domestic investigations, hidden assets, and accident scene investigations. The PI Institute of Education is a featured learning partner in the toolbox.com. So check out the free content on the site, then visit the Institute for more great savings on additional classes. Want full data access without a site inspection? IRB search gives you full social security numbers, dates of birth, up-to-date contact info, and so much more without the inconvenience or cost of an inspection. As an added bonus, you can access IRB data on any device in any location. You'll always have the best data, anytime, anywhere. Visit irbsearch.com and use exclusive promo code PIPOD2021 for a free trial and 100 credits. Offer available for new and returning customers.
2: And welcome everybody back to PI Perspectives. This is Matt Spare, your host, who we're joined today by Rachel Roberts from Colorado. Rachel, how are you?
0: Doing fabulous, thank you,
2: Matt. How Man, are you? I'm doing well, doing well. So, uh, thank you so much for uh, for coming on here today. I know we had talked, uh, like I said earlier, uh, for for a while. You had some life things that gotten away, some work things that gotten away, and and it's just great to have you here today. Um, so let's jump into the topic here. We uh, we're talking. I um, wanted to talk about this uh, uh, murder or suicide. You you call it uh, case that you you worked on uh, that was a pretty big deal. Um, was it back in 2020? Correct.
0: Yeah, it went to trial in August of 2020. The you know, alleged crime occurred in September 2019. It was really just fascinating first-degree murder case that uh, I think is the perfect example of how important timelines are in investigations in particular.
2: Okay. So let's dive into it. Tell me a little bit uh, about the, the case and what your role in it was.
0: Sure. Uh, so... The case was, it occurred in, in Denver. Um, client was an architect in his early 40s. He and his fiance lived in a bungalow in a cute little neighborhood south of Denver, downtown Denver. Uh, he, client owned the home himself, but they had been together for several years. They lived together. They were, had plans to get married. Uh, they went out one night for a networking event uh, she was a broker. As I said, he was an architect. So they had their worlds collided a lot um, in a, in a professional sense as well. Right. And so they went out at this uh, networking event. He wanted to come home early. She wanted to stay out. He came home early. She stayed out a couple more hours. And then when she got home, um, it just, it, it wasn't good. Um, they, he, he wanted to, have her sleep. The way He had a bungalow and um, there was a separate unit on the basement level that they sometimes rented out for Airbnb. And he, it was not rented out that night, um, but he decided that um, he didn't want her to sleep in the main part of the house that night. So he locked her out of the main part of the house. He wanted her to sleep in the basement, kind of cool off. He was upset that she stayed out and was pretty drunk. Um, drinking was a problem in their relationship. Ah. Um, they often argued verbally, no prior, uh, physical abuse or reports or calls to the home or anything like that. Um, but friends and family would, you know, attest that, yeah, you know, they often drank too much. And when they did, they argued quite a bit. Right. Um, and so at the time that the gun went off, uh, it was about 1213 in the morning. Um, and they were the only two people in the house. And unfortunately, um, the neighbor who called, there was a neighbor who called 911. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but she had heard them arguing verbally, uh, prior to no, nobody heard the gunshot actually, other than clients, um, including law enforcement who had been on scene for 15 minutes. And, uh, she gave them the wrong address accidentally and so law enforcement was a little late to arrive. They also, based on the severity of the call from the neighbor, um, police were waiting. There were several units and they were waiting for four units to arrive um, because of what they thought they were walking into a pretty serious domestic violence situation. Um, And it's kind of a classic example of how a single witness's report of assumptions can just cause a whirlwind of um, misunderstanding. Sure. So the neighbor that called 911 saw my client walk into, he had these sheds, he, he lived in like an old, it's almost like a farmhouse, but in the middle of downtown Denver, it's difficult to describe, but he had these old sheds like four in a row that lined up in the back of the property right. and the neighbor saw a client walk into the sheds and heard the female victim or deceased um screaming and crying and she assumed that client locked her up in the shed and was like assaulting her in the shed. Um, but as it turns out, and, and this is something that is, is better to have a visual on, but right. you know, of course, I went into the neighbor's house and stood exactly where she was looking when she made the phone call, which is something the police did not do. And she couldn't see the you know half of the property that had the house on it. She didn't know that this woman was actually banging and screaming and kicking on a door. Yeah, it was not locked in the shed. It's
2: the classic. My cousin Vinny, uh, you know, witnessed with the glasses and all that, right? I think they see something or, right. or hear something, and it's, it's completely different, right?
0: That's right, and um, I mean, really, we got hugely lucky in this case. Um, the public defender. So, in the state of Colorado, when you're charged with first degree murder, you are held um, with no bond until there is a hearing in which a judge decides the proof is not evident and the presumption is not great that you'll be convicted of first degree murder. It takes a few months to have that hearing. So this occurred at the end of September, 2019. We didn't have that hearing until the beginning of December. So clients in jail the whole time, not really able to help too much. There was a lot of digital evidence in particular that was, I mean, the entire case. And, and this is the type of evidence that I was putting into a timeline right. Um. You know to prove that he didn't do this um but i mean really the biggest part of this case was he had uh blank surveillance cameras outside of his property that the police never collected and um we were able to the public defenders who got us you know had the case for maybe three four days before we hopped on it had the mind to his his blank videos were set to only hold for 14 days right and so they told us about it and we actually preserved it because you know, for a full year, you don't want anything happening to these videos. I mean, they're completely exculpatory. Right. Um, obviously, you don't want to be charged with destruction of evidence or no, anything no. like that. Yep. Yep. Um, but they missed the Blink videos um, because, and I this is something I didn't know before this case. Um, he had three Blink video cameras on his on his property because there were three doors, and he had one pointed at each exterior door. Right. Each blank video camera has a different serial number and the police officer who wrote the search warrant or the detective rather, he only included one of the serial numbers. And it just so happened that that camera during the time period he requested, the battery died. Oh my goodness. So the other two cameras were fully functioning, but he didn't get the footage. And, you know, I think Amazon definitely probably should have said something there, but they did not. Um, and so the police never got it. And this is all something that we unveiled at the proof evident hearing. And it's the primary reason why we were able to get him out on bond because they were yeah. still arguing that, you know, she was locking the shed.
2: Wow, that's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. Okay, so you, you've you've got this uh, thing. So you're hired on this. And now there's hearings that take place, right? And you have to go to court there. Let's talk about that a little bit. How that looked like during covid
0: Sure. Well, this this was pre-COVID, actually. So right. yeah, the the hearings were December of 2019. Um, but my um, testimony at the hearing was pretty similar, well, more extensive, but um, similar to what I ended up ultimately testifying to at trial, which was that I made this massive spreadsheet um, that I turned into a pretty PDF because lawyers don't like spreadsheets. Right. Exactly. And. <laughs> It just had, I mean, it had all sorts of input from, you know, different discovery sources like the blank video and the, he had Vivint motion sensors inside of his house, which was the, you know, the other massively critical piece of evidence um, because his story, he talked to the detective that night, As you know, as soon as he was taken, he was taken into custody immediately. He talked to the detective for You know, 45 minutes until it was clear, you know, he was, they were not believing him, you know, they were, they were thinking he did this. So, and he said from the get go that he was in the kitchen when the gunshot went off. So we were actually able to prove that the motion sensor did trip into the kitchen. Of course, you can't say who was there. It's the timing, which we can get into a little bit depends on the system. Um, but at least we could say, hey, look, there's this piece of data that actually supports that someone did go into the kitchen right around this time. Uh, you know, phone extractions. We had his cell phone. We had her cell phone. We had 911 calls and transcripts. We had the police CAD. And then, of course, you have um, all kinds of base PDF discovery. So I took all of these different sources and essentially created a massive timeline from 8 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. during, you know, before, during, and after this was all going on. Right. Uh, and I think that's something that in varying levels should be done in a lot of cases. You know, I do timelines in most of my cases, certainly all my big cases. And
3: right.
0: I think cell phone data in particular you know, I'm not a digital forensics expert. I can't do cell phone imaging, but one thing that I do often, and I think other investigators should do more is analyzing these phones. I mean, you don't need Celebrite to use the Celebrite portable case file.
3: Um,
0: And the Celebrite reader report is far more valuable than you know, any PDF you'll ever get. I mean, these phone PDFs are 60,000 pages long. You can't yeah. possibly <laughs> go through that. I mean, the yeah. reader is just so fabulous. And right. um, we're the ones with the case facts. We're the ones that know it. You know, you can only ask your experts so much. You don't give them all the information. So right. obviously have your experts do the imaging. But then I think it's important for investigators to take over because I essentially, you know, export call logs, I export messages. You can export them right in CSV format and throw them in your spreadsheet. Right. Of course, this is kind of tying into my past of data analysis a little bit, that I understand others go. don't necessarily have, but no, so the, I mean, that's the kind you, of stuff I love.
2: You'd be surprised. There's there's more of, of you out there than you think. <laughs> quite, okay, good. I know quite a few investigators that have a strong data background that, that really, uh, you know, that quest for knowledge is really there. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So, really, you know, the the, the timeline stuff is just so important, right? Uh, being able to to put all that back together. So, did did it turn out eventually that it was a suicide? Is that what that was? Or
0: yep, yep, so- the uh, forensic evidence in particular. So, I don't I don't know about New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in obviously in Colorado they still test for GSR,
2: right? That was the first question that I had. All right. So did someone do gunshot residue? Because, you know, if it's a suicide, it should be all over. The powder should be everywhere.
0: Sure, sure. And his his hands were immediately bagged. I mean, law enforcement, there were four units already on the scene when the shot went off, even though they didn't, nobody heard it. Um, Client called 911 as soon as the shot went off. Then you had two people, you know, the neighbor and client. He's Mm -hmm. hysterical. Um actually his 911 call was the basis for why the detective believed he was guilty, which we'll get into. Right. Um, but there was GSR on her hand. She also had stippling on her finger, um, or soot rather, and um he did not have GSR on him. Um, but I know you know the validity of GSR is highly debated. Oregon state won't even allow it in court. Um yeah. so we kind of took that in colorado at least it's like use it if it's good yeah and if it's if it's not good then um so it, is,
2: is your work like just uh only in colorado or do you work on cases yeah you know and you had mentioned federal uh before when we were chatting do you, do you go outside the state or you're pretty much sticking to colorado
0: I'm pretty much sticking to Colorado. I do do uh, federal casework. Um, I've recently done a few cases in Wyoming. I'm licensed in Cheyenne. They don't have state licensing in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Colorado recently exactly. lost our licensing. <laughs> yeah. um, That's another show. <laughs> I, I have also been very um, careful, more careful lately, mostly by learning from other NALI members um, about issues with conducting, you know, it was always my understanding that if your case originated in Colorado and you had a witness that lived elsewhere, you could go and interview them. Right. Uh, But that is not, not the case after hearing from other Nally investigators and talking about, um, you know, the issues that they've had with some evidence coming into court when someone's not licensed in their state. And it's clear to me that that's not a risk you can take. So
2: um,
0: now I, will not be
2: doing that right and we're, we're talking about the national association of legal investigators um it's a great association if you do any type of uh, legal investigative work and you have it i think it's three years experience uh, to to be a member folks you have to join the association what rachel is talking about like the camaraderie of having other investigators that do this type of work um a very very active listserv um it's one of my favorites I love Nally, it just from the second I joined and, and I worked so many years I think I was like 13 years in business before I even joined and as soon as I did I was like what what was I waiting for like this is such a great resource um,
0: I was I was very fortunate because uh, when I first got into this business I worked for Ellis Armstead who's yeah. you know a legend among, Ellis is,
2: is a legend yes he is among
0: us <laughs> mortal investigators yeah. <laughs> um, True. And so he, you know, that was the first thing he had to do was become a NALI member and brought me to the conferences, which was awesome. And it's just such a wonderful group of people.
2: Well, speaking of conferences, we'll give a a shameless plug here. (laughs) By the time this show airs, I think this Friday uh, uh, would be when uh, the uh, virtual conference is taking place. It's the 11th of of February. Um, If you are not familiar with NALI, come check it out and, and see the content uh, I know it's not in person; it's virtual, but it's well, well worth it. It's a great, great organization. They have a great schedule planned of of speakers and and all that. And uh, yeah, Nally is a great resource, right? So it's it's not even just the work that you do, and and you know the site searches that we have or the data programs that we have. You know, the back and forth with other investigators. There's real value to that. You you speak of Ellis, um, you know that guy's he's a rock star. You know, he really understands this kind of stuff. And and even like going to a, a live event, I, I think you may have been down in Tampa with F. Lee Bailey. I mean, that was a game changer. <laughs> Here's this guy. He's like, you know, he's there and he's chatting with us. And, and it's like it's not even the first time he's been there. Everybody knows him. Ah, look, it's F. Lee. Yeah, how you doing? This and that. And I'm like, I, I got to sit down and have lunch with a guy, which was crazy, completely randomly sat at the same table. And uh, man, it was such a great event.
0: Yeah, that was that was really cool to have him there and and you're right. I mean, it's just especially the amount of experience in in Mali and just the uh, people from different walks of life and different places. I mean, we have members in Northern Ireland, you yeah. know. You can you can find people everywhere and the resources and just everyone someone has done it before probably yeah. Yeah. and there's always someone willing to help.
2: Yeah, there's even a, a CLI from Canada recently, right? There was a that's guy right. that, that uh, that's passed. Right. So, uh, that's very cool. So, I wanted to shift over because I do want to cover a little bit of, of what your experience has been like um, being in court and testifying in court. Um, the show that aired last week, actually, we were talking to a personal injury attorney uh, and his experience in and being in the courtroom. Tell me a little bit about your experience, what you've uh, been through in the past year or so uh, having to go into court.
0: Sure. Uh so this case that I've been talking about, the murder or suicide, uh, went to trial in August twenty twenty. I'm fairly certain that we were the first COVID trial to go 20, in Colorado.
2: Twenty twenty one, you mean, right?
0: No, August August twenty 2020.
2: twenty. August twenty twenty. Okay. All right, yeah. August
0: twenty twenty. <laughs> it's
2: all blurred. Yeah,
0: so is, yeah, <laughs> I know. Sorry. It really is. Uh in in Colorado at least, you know, when the pandemic first hit. No one really know knew what to do. You know, it's like all all the cases were getting continued. All all the dates were getting continued. There wasn't a sense of when things were going to pick back up again. Um, This client was very frustrated because he was set for June of twenty twenty and very much so wanted to go to trial and did not want to postpone anymore. Right. Which the DA's wanted to, but um, we we were finally, and there were a lot of lawyers um, that were. You know, we went to trial in August 2020 because client really wanted to go, but there was certainly a feeling among some criminal defense attorneys that it was irresponsible for us to go to trial um, Mm. because of the COVID um, setting and atmosphere. Uh, We almost mistried picking a jury because, um, you know, normally you pick a jury, you go in the courtroom, everyone's sitting in the gallery and waiting for their turn to be called up to the box. Uh, but this time, you know, they had to find a room big enough for everyone to sit six feet apart. We had, I believe 97 prospective jurors. So we had 97 people measured six feet apart. Um, it was super unproductive in terms of passing the microphone, being able to hear these people's answers, um, we got very lucky, and the clerk was willing to stay late. Otherwise, um, we wouldn't have finished picking a jury. It took us 12 hours. We got our jury. It was um, all women except for one man, right. and which we weren't super thrilled about. But you know, you do what you can. Right. Um, <laughs> and then once we got up to the courtroom, we were set for a 9-day trial, and um, the jurors sat six feet apart in the gallery of the courtroom and equally awkward was um, the deceased's family was sitting in the jury box with our client's family sitting six feet apart, but we were facing the jury box. So for the first few days of trial, the jury was just watching the decedent's family glaring at us, you know, until I think once, once some of the forensic science started to come out, it definitely felt like there was a shift in the environment, in the courtroom. Sure. Um, but it was it was really tough. It was really hard. Um, we had these this TV, this great big TV that was on the defense side. The TV that was on the side of the prosecutors stayed in the same place in terms of digital evidence. As I said, there's a ton in this case because of all the Blink videos. Right. We had to constantly, it was it was me of course, you know, get up every time something turn the turn the TV so the jury can see, put the TV back so they can see client, because when the TV was turned, they couldn't have a view of client. And as we know, you know, every every juror is supposed to have the same view of a defendant. Right. Um, which, you know, we had jurors sitting at the very back of the courtroom. The the lone guy on the case was definitely falling asleep throughout. He was <laughs> come on all dude. the way back <laughs> really i know it was it, he was a, a videographer I was get really that guy
2: some filterless
0: Storytelling. <laughs> i know i know um so it was just yeah it was um not ideal and then i remember at the end it was like this whole like wait what are we gonna do with exhibits you know how are they going to review exhibits because you know we can't have people touching anything we didn't right. do jury questionnaires because they were like, well, how do we even collect pencils? It was just, you know, the beginning of COVID and obviously we've come quite a ways from then, but, um, there were so many hurdles that you don't even really consider until you're in there. Right. Um, they didn't even pass out water anymore, you right. know, for, for witnesses. Yeah. It's, <laughs> so <sorry. laughs>
2: That's crazy. It was
0: tough to be able to, um, read jurors faces when you're selecting the jury. Um, I think tough for like, actually, right. I remember right during jury selection, you know, we had our client wear a clear mask because we felt that an actual mask made him look scary. Right. Yeah, it, like it a bank robber, kind of you know, Mysterious, <laughs> right, you know, exactly. it, 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 and so we were like, okay, we'll have him wear a clear mask. Right. But then the rest of us weren't wearing clear masks. And we actually had a juror say like, well, you know, I think it's kind of weird because the, the lawyers that I worked for on that case are two female lawyers. So uh, we had our male client and three females for the defense team. And this female juror stood up and was like, well, I think it's kind of questionable that you have a male defendant with three females representing him. And he's the only one wearing a clear mask. And that is something that I had never even thought about. I was like, okay, we all have to wear the same mask from now on because right. they're exactly. passing judgment on the types of masks we're wearing.
2: Obviously guilty of murder if he's wearing the wrong mask. I mean come Yeah, on.
0: clearly. <laughs> yeah. Beyond a reasonable doubt, man. <laughs> That's crazy.
2: <laughs> uh but so you know this, on the jury. <laughs> this is this is life, right? These are the stressors that we deal with and uh, you know, every it's all I been throw everything out the window <laughs> this past two years. Um, you know, and that whole mask thing is, it's a big deal too, especially when the, the attorneys are, are, you know, articulating and making their arguments. If, you know, I had spoke to David Otto on, on the other, um, you know, the attorney, uh, the other episode, and he was saying that, you know, he had to give his oral arguments with a mask on. And it's like, you lose a real, um, uh, you know, real thing of being able to express yourself, you know, that those facial expressions where they can't, they see your eyes moving around, but they don't actually, see your face, um, I think you, you really lose a lot, but it, that was different in Colorado, right? You said they were allowed to take the mask off?
0: Well, it was it was a little bit different. So uh, we had some hearings in July and the lawyers did have to mask up when they were making their arguments during those hearings. But by the time we got to trial, they allowed the attorney conducting direct or cross take off their mask and they allowed the witness on the stand, if they, if they were comfortable with it to remove their mask, they had plexiglass up right. in front of the witness stand. Um, and I would say most witnesses were okay with removing their masks sure. and speaking without a mask on. Um, of course that goes for the witnesses too, right? Not just the lawyers. I mean, you want to be able to evaluate someone wholly mm. when they're speaking. Um, yeah. So, and, and now it's the same uh, in court. So it's, everyone's wearing a mask except for whoever's at the podium attorney-wise. Um, I've had actually recently judges, if they're addressing the court, they've started taking off their masks as well. Um, but it is, it seems like every, (laughs) every court's different. I mean, every jurisdiction is different. Um, my federal trial that went at the end of September in Wyoming, um, the jurors weren't six feet apart. Um, it's just, it's a little bit different everywhere, I think.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what's, what's going on here. So what do you think is going to happen in the future here going forward? you think things will go back to being normal? You think they'll hold on to some, some of these things?
0: You know, I really don't know. Um, I do think the one great thing that's emerged from all of this is the court's willingness. Well, I, they've been forced to, but um, to conduct, you know, hearing virtually and/or yeah. hear witnesses remotely. Yeah. Um, I you know we've h- still had some pushback. We had a um, couple motions hearings earlier this week, and we tried to get someone who lives out of state to testify remotely.
2: That's um, the, that's the problem right? they're not in state. They
0: they wouldn't let us do that. Um, we couldn't have that. We wanted to just call them on the phone because um, was, uh, this case has garnered a lot of tension and someone hacked our Webex.
2: Oh, fun. (laughs) So uh, we shut
0: down, (laughs) we shut down the Webex so that um, no one could get in. But then we had this problem of like, okay, well, we can't have this person testify on Webex. The DA is objected to having them on the phone. So it's, you know, I I feel like it's been nice and time-saving sometimes the court is allowing this to happen, but Um, and I think that should stay, you yeah. know, I think that that would be a good thing to stick around. Um, but otherwise I think it's just kind of been a colossal headache for,
2: yeah, for most. Totally. Totally. We almost had to postpone recording this episode because I had to go testify in court, which I was <laughs> supposed to do in person. And I was supposed to do it on Monday. And they called me, uh, Thursday recording this on Friday. They called me Thursday and said, Hey, uh, good news! uh, We're through jury selection, and then we need you tomorrow. I'm like, I I can't do it, you know, in person, but I can do it virtually. And they're like, Oh, we didn't think of that. Yeah, let's see if they'll allow to do that. And the judge actually was allowing it; they were going to do it. And as a business owner, I was like, Okay, well, that's cool. I don't have to get dressed up and go down to Manhattan and all that. But then as I also can't bill what I was going to bill for, for half a day. You know, it's like, okay, you know, I got to go in and my testimonies maybe going to take me 30 minutes, 40 minutes. You know, how do I bill that now? <laughs> right. So that was a That's question Right. I was in, like in my mind thinking like, okay, well, it's cool. I don't have to go to court, but this is going to hurt me in the pocket. Right. Uh,
0: yeah. I, I do. I do think that in-person testimony is always better in yeah. terms of being able, you know, both, you know, from a juror perspective and from a you know a legal perspective, at least defense in terms of being able to evaluate someone right there. And when someone's on a screen, it's so much easier for people to not pay attention as much as they do when someone's there in person. But, you know, when you have an expert that bills $500 an hour and lives in California and you're like, do we have $15,000 to fly them in for one hearing? Right. WebEx is pretty appealing.
2: Except when it gets hacked, <laughs> apparently. Except, for,
0: except when it gets hacked,
3: yes.
2: Darn those hackers. Yeah. So I, I think we're going to wind down here. This was great. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and, and chatting about this and just relaying your experience. Um, if folks wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that?
0: Best way would be to email me, Rachel at RobertsInvestigations.com. That's R-A-C-H-E-L. Or I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah. That's That's pretty much it for my social media, but... That's, I'm on there.
2: That's great. That's great. And I encourage you again, folks, if you're around on uh, February 11th for the Nally conference, the virtual conference, come check it out. It's not that expensive and it's well worth it. And I think they're they're handing out credits, uh, the continuing education credits, if I recall correctly. Um, but uh, yeah, now is a great association. Um, that's actually how you and I met. Uh, through, through that. So um, I highly recommend it. So, okay. So we're going to wind down. Thank you everybody for uh, joining us this week and we'll catch everybody next week on the next show.
0: Thanks for having me, Matt. Take care.
1: A special thanks to you, Rachel, for coming on and sharing your experience. We also want to thank Crosstracks, IRB, PI Institute of Education, and NCISS for sponsoring the show. So please support our great supporters and don't forget register for the free town hall meeting. Now, have you thought about joining Investigators Toolbox yet? Now's the time to do so. Get on board and join the fastest growing digital community for investigative professionals. And use code PIP201836 to save 10% on your membership. If you have a question or a comment about the show, email Matt at MatthewS at satellitepi.com. You can also find him on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. We want your feedback to bring you the best shows possible. And we'll be back next week with a new show. So make sure you tune in and stay safe out there.